It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Kubrick's Universe Podcast. Here is the second episode in our Ficatria Kubrick series. This time, it is, of course, a discussion of Kubrick's second feature film, Killer's Kiss. It was hosted by Mark Lentz, moderated by James Robert Sherman, and populated by members of the SCAS Academy, Jonathan Harvey, Robert Kohler, Mark McKennan, Nick LaMatina, James Phillip, Brian Kahn, David Sukavati, Kathy Metzger, and Ian Roscoe. This is Thicatria Kubrick. Killer's Kiss is a 1955 American crime film noir directed by Stanley Kubrick. It is Kubrick's second feature film following his debut with Fear and Desire in 1953. The film is an independently produced project with a relatively low budget and a cast of relatively unknown actors. The film was written by Stanley Kubrick and Howard Sackler. The story revolves around Davy Gordon, played by Jamie Smith, a 29-year-old middleweight boxer in New York City who is nearing the end of his career. The narrative unfolds as Davy becomes entangled in a complex relationship with his neighbor, Gloria Price, played by Irene Kane. Gloria's employer, Vincent Rapallo, who was played by Frank Silvera, adds an element of danger to the plot, introducing a layer of suspense and crime. Kubrick financed Killer's Kiss privately, with Morris Bussell covering most of the budget and earning a co-producer credit. But unlike his first film, Fear and Desire, Kubrick chose to post-dub this entire movie, departing from the common practice of recording sound on location. Noteworthy for its depiction of locations like the old Penn Station in Times Square and the dilapidated streets of the Brooklyn waterfront and Soho, Ruth Sabotka, Kubrick's wife at the time, served as the film's art director, and she also played a role in the movie. Despite Kubrick's preference, United Artists insisted on a recut with a happy ending. Killer's Kiss is an early work in Stanley Kubrick's career, showcasing some of the stylistic and narrative elements that would become hallmarks of his later, more widely acclaimed films. Despite its modest budget and initial commercial challenges, the film has gained recognition as a significant part of Kubrick's filmography. So we now present to you this conversation, which was recorded on September 16th, 2023. So as last week, I hope everybody has seen the film and uh, we'll go around the horn and each give some impressions. Uh, then we'd have some time to talk about the film more generally. But we're looking for what what did you notice about the film this time in your life compared to other times you've seen it? What's you notice new? 
Did you notice anything about Kubrick's development uh, and stuff like that? So let's do it like that. Okay, so Jonathan, you are first. Give us some thoughts. Okay, well, I watched it in three installments, uh, and I was very impressed with the photography, and I liked it generally like the film overall more than I did when I saw it in 98, where it was on a double bill with Killing. And um, I um, I noticed that there were some shots that were through walls. There was a back shot of the boxer's um, alarm clock uh, and mirrors where the, the camera was curly behind a wall, seeing through a wall, which I was sort of impressed by. And um thought the ballet sequence just went on a little too long. Uh, I mean, I realized it was Kubrick's wife and everything. But, um, and I just learned from Wikipedia that the United Artists demanded a happy ending that he didn't have originally. So this is the one time he lost uh, creative control. And, uh, and you can sort of tell that the footage just before she arrives at the train station is from the non-happy ending version because he's sort of narrating like he's wrapping it up. I'm never going to see her again. You, you can sort of tell that was filmed when it was... <laughs> you can tell it was filmed when it was actually the intention that he wasn't going to see her again. Um, but then she shows up. Um, and um, I thought the actors were quite good. I... Um, I mean, I thought he, uh, I mean, he may have hired them for time. I thought he directed the actors well. And I um, also noticed there's no chess game in the movie. Um, there often is. <laughs> um, I, was just, I was just wondering if there's a scene in the killing where some guy stops off at a chess club. And um, so I, I just kept wondering if, if there's going to be a chess game showing up in this film. And there wasn't any. <laughs> but there was a sort of a game of chess going on between the two right. <laughs> female leads. I heard there's a sport called chess boxing where you do beat <laughs> chess and box. So Are you serious? Really? Yeah, I just found <laughs> that <out> this morning. <laughs> All right, uh, Robert K. Hi, folks. Um, I'm in my new location, same home, but a uh, new room. Um, you know, one, one thing that I hadn't really picked up on about Killer's Kiss this time, I, I don't know, I think I've seen it. Probably, this is probably my fourth viewing, maybe, over like a long stretch of time, was how, what an interesting depiction of working-class Manhattan this was. Uh, he captured New York City really at its, arguably at its peak in the mid-50s. I think we can figure that the filming was in 54, uh, possibly, or maybe early 55 at the latest. So it's like New York, New York ruled baseball, um, Broadway, um, you know, the fine arts, um, the performing arts. New York was the center of the world. It was actually the center of the cultural Western world uh, 
in the 50s and the center of sports in the 50s. Uh, it was far and away the dominant American city uh, during that period. And yet, you know, for all the wealth that was pouring into the city and all of the glamour and fame, there was a um, a real working class that could still afford to live in Manhattan, unlike now, where it's completely unaffordable if you're working class to live in Manhattan. You st- it's not possible, really, anymore. The working class and the boroughs are all out on the outer boroughs now, uh, and it's one of the you know it's one of the more segregated cities in terms of class, probably in America now. But then, if you're working class, you could still live in Manhattan. And it's so interesting looking at Killer's Kiss inside the framework of how the working class in Manhattan lived then. And I was so struck by the the documentary uh, foundation that Kubrick had built as a filmmaker (laughs) and how that really grounded the film in a a hyper-real world where every detail in these apartments was so real. this is how people really lived in these small, tiny apartments, and 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 every every hallway. I don't believe. I think there was maybe one built set during production. I think there was just one, and and even that was partial. Um, everything else was a found location, and um, I, I was so struck by how wide and broad he was able to capture New York downtown. There's incredible downtown uh, shots in the final third of the film. The final third of the film is almost entirely downtown. And what a completely different vibe and setting and mood that area. That area is from the lights and the bustle of Times Square um, with all the crazy stuff going on the streets, the guys who steal his scarf and and you're 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 blitzed with advertising. There's something almost Godardian. I don't know. There's something I picked up on was there's something almost Godardian about all of the advertising and all the signage and all of the um he cuts away to these uh pieces of signage. Uh, I had never picked up on that a bit before and these mini montages that he cuts in. Um, I'm also struck. I, it it was always there, but this is the only feature that Kubrick wrote as an original screenplay by himself. It's the only one. Every other film that he made was either written by another writer or co-written or based on previous on, on on existing material an adaptation this is not an adaptation there were no co-writers it was an original story um the screen credit is interesting it does not say screenplay by stanley kubrick it doesn't say written by stanley kubrick it says story by that's interesting 
Uh, I don't know what went into that choice uh, because the credits are very, very uh, classical. They're very elegant. Uh, they're quite precise. Uh, his final credit, it's edited, photographed, and directed by. So he put those, you know, three together um, to really make them stand out. And it was a very consciously auteurist kind of credit uh, in that way. Um, and then I began to think, okay, what does that mean in terms of what does that tell us about him as a writer? And uh, I realized this shows us his limitations as a writer. It shows his genius as an editor, his genius as a, as a photographer. Truly astounding cinematography for such a uh, bare-bones production where he probably had a crew of no more than two or three. And he pretty much did it all on his own, and it looks fabulous. And by the way, did anyone... I don't know if anyone spotted this. Maybe this has been mentioned. Do you know the this um, wonderful uh, uh, sort of intro trailer that you'll see on Turner Movie Classics that depicts 50s urban America? And it has these great shots out. Of, and you can identify Naked City. And you can identify... Uh, sometimes shots out of asphalt jungle in it. But there's a shot in this TMC montage of a ticket taker behind a window taking it, you know, taking cash and handing out a ticket. And I wonder what film is that from? And it's from this film. And there is, there's that shot of the ticket taker inside the booth. And um, how evocative uh, all of all of these shots were that Kubrick did all by himself. So it's like what it what I got away for, uh, took away from it this time was that he had already um, advanced very far as a cinematographer and as an editor. He was learning his way as a director. Uh, he didn't really get much of a performance out of Kane. She's pretty inexpressive. She doesn't do too much, really, for me. I mean, she has like one or two expressions, and that's about it. Very limited actor. He's very good. My wife commented, he's very Burt Lancaster. And I think that was that's right on the mark. Really evokes Burt Lancaster. And it's a really good performance. Frank Silvera, terrific. Um, but he's learning his way as a director of actors. As a writer, very limited. And I think it shows his limitations as a writer. And I think he recognized that in himself, and he knew he always needed another writer, collaborator, or he needed somebody else's book in order to give him the material to build a screenplay on. That's a great. Great statement, Robert. I guess we'll move on to uh, to Mark. I uh, I was very impressed. I was very uh, 
uh, intrigued. Uh, like Robert said, it's a it's a quantum leap from fear and desire in, in just about every way. It's uh, a photograph with a real eye for framing, for composition, lighting, pace, blocking. He does a tremendous amount with very little. Uh, the story was well-paced, wasn't particularly unique. And he was working the fringes of the film noir genre, but he was trying to up his game with uh, kind of the thriller romance aspects, uh, which worked pretty well. I thought that some of his camera moves were really quite audacious, simple, but audacious. And I just have, I, I suspect that they might have been sort of uh, improvised on the fly. I, I don't know that some of them were planned. Uh, there's one that I can think of in particular that's unlike just about anything else in the movie, unless I missed it. But um, it's one of those things that somebody who's really working with the actors or, and working with the frame and working with this location sort of invents on the fly. Uh, can I screen share? Sure. I have a couple of interesting things here to uh, impart that I found. Can anybody see that, what I'm doing? The Mercury Bar? Yes, that's 659 9th Avenue. <laughs> now, wow. it doesn't tell you so much, but you can see the address over there on the left, just under the Mercury Bar. Uh. <laughs> that doesn't tell you very much, though. But this one, here's our evil twins back again. <laughs> Oh, yeah. See our evil twins? Yeah. There's a lot of twinning in this film. There is a lot of twinning. And I'm I'm wondering about those guys passed through a scene at least three times. So I'm wondering if they were fixtures on the block or if Stanley sort of hired them or encouraged them to walk through this frame several times. He had a lot of people in the cast um, listed, you know, beyond the principal three. So I mean, I I would say maybe like a dozen. So it makes me think that these two could have been in there. But I mean, (laughs) yeah, one of them is here's our here's our evil twins again. Where have you seen that one before? Maybe the fear and desire. No. Well, maybe it was some fear and desire. But here's Johnny. Ah, He's got it. And I, th- I think what Robert said before, I think it's not correct. I think that they shot the last sequence, the last third of the movie in Dumbo, Brooklyn. And here's my proof. Here's a picture at the corner of Adams and Plymouth Street in Dumbo, Brooklyn. In yeah, I thought it was Brooklyn. I thought it was downtown Brooklyn. Oh, you know what? That is Brooklyn because you can see the uh, uh, skyscrapers in Manhattan. Yes. On the that's, other side, right. That's Dumbo, Brooklyn, yeah. Adams, and Plymouth Street. And there's the proof. Same exact location mm-hmm. 60 mm-hmm. something years later. Mm-hmm. Buildings are still there. On the right. <laughs> when he shot this, he, this is right under and just 
north of the Manhattan Bridge. So he framed it out. He framed out the Manhattan Bridge. Yeah. I think a lot of that uh, uh, sequence, though, is downtown, though. I mean. No, that the rooftop chase is along. Is that in Brooklyn? I thought yes, it was for all that Brooklyn. Along the the uh, Empire Fulton Ferry Terminal, which was a Civil War. Um, they built it in the Civil War because at that part of the war, at, between, say, 1860 and about just before, sometime before World War I, the entire riverfront of Brooklyn was one of the largest industrial areas in the entire United States. It was a munitions factory, ironworks, everything was down there. And the, the coffee exchange, some of the big buildings down there were built as coffee exchange and, and uh, uh, iron for building munitions for the Civil War and even into uh early into the 20th century. Yeah, a lot of development in Brooklyn had started, and I think it was still grittier than potentially parts of lower Manhattan Yeah, still plus, at, at that time. Plus, at the time that Stanley shot it, there was no residential there at all. So That's in the correct. morning or on the afternoon or uh, yeah. in the uh, on the weekend, completely deserted. Not one apartment. Yeah, I, I noticed that. I got the feeling that it could have been weekend shooting because it was really empty, and I don't think he had that kind of crowd control. <laughs> Mark really went on a, uh, who, you know, where's Waldo a thing this week? I did. <laughs> Jesus, with, with this, with this shot, I'm, I'm, I'm literally, that's not me in the picture, but I'm at, at times I've been literally walking in the footsteps of Stanley Kubrick, so there's something to be said. Uh, as for the movie itself, I, I, I enjoyed it. It was, uh, I mean, I didn't find it particularly groundbreaking, but it was very audacious for a fellow that's what at the time. What, what I also noticed about the movie was very early on, it seems to have developed an obsession with doorways and portals, which is very Kubrickian throughout the entire movie. There's, and some of them may be just happenstance of, you know where to place the camera to tell the to tell the story the best way, but at other times he seems to have set up the camera to shoot directly through a doorway or at a doorway or a tunnel of some kind, an alleyway of some kind. He's very um, conscious of entries and entrances, entryways and entrances, and in this case, there must have been fifty shots of. People through windows and doorways. A lot of interior framing, but he seems to be really interested in the movement of people through doorways. And we see that over and over again in so many of his movies. Um, so thereon, we have an early Kubrick motif, along with his evil twins and um, the, the lower angle of shooting up at someone's face, you know, from below or from an oblique angle, not straight on, not from the side, but underneath looking up at them. So even at, even at that early time, he was looking for how can I tell the, and, and how can I tell the, the story I want to tell, but shoot it in an interesting way so that the audience is intrigued to keep looking because I'm trying to get below the surface 
of these characters and of the meaning of the story. I don't just want to tell something straight in a conventional way. I'm looking to tell a, 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 a possibly conventional story in a very interesting and different way. So he's very he's thinking well ahead of the curve very early on. So kudos to that. Thanks, Mark. Excellent observations. Next order will be Nick, Brian, David, James, Robert. Those are the next four. Nick. Hi, guys. So um, real quick, I, I have to tell you, I stopped the movie about 50 times <laughs> because the narrative bored me, if I'm being honest, and hope I'm not being too hard on it. But, you know, to me, there was nothing at stake. It, um, I think the narration was extraneous. I think it could, it could have done without it. Uh, but, you know, um, Robert already mentioned that the script itself was weak and that, um, you know, it was story by perhaps he had some help structurally inciting incident comes at the 21st minute, um, which was good. But this is now I, I don't say this lightly because it's something it's something that I think really did happen. First of all, the movie was made in 55. So in Kubrick's mind, he's probably thinking, that he, you know, he wants to do a. Uh, uh, some type of film noir, double indemnity, you know, throwback kind of thing. You know, there's melodrama involved. We know that. We see that there's a, an anti, sort of an anti-feminism. You know, if you would do, if you would apply feminist film theory, this would be the opposite of that. You know, damsel in distress, a woman that needs a man, uh, can't say no, doesn't fight back so much. But that wasn't what uh, stuck out to me. What stuck out to me were the exact shots in very famous movies that were used. And, and I and I actually went on YouTube, looked at the shot, and juxtaposed it next to what we watched the other night. So the first one is Taxi Driver. There's a scene where um there it's a it's a it's a, a pan shot and they're looking at the curb and there's all the people walking along the theaters. At the time in 55, and I don't know where that would be exact, you know, the exact block, but it's in the area of Times Square. And it's the exact shot when Travis is saying all the animals come out at night. In the, It's the exact shot. Then there's another scene where children are running away. You also see that in Taxi Driver as well, where instead of it being neighborhood children and some women kind of like scolding the kids, uh, if I remember correctly, this was the pimps uh, yelling, or the, I said the prostitutes and taxi driver. So then I said, okay, is that the only similarity? Well, no. Then in Raging Bull, you see a lot of the same shots. The, one of the first ones was the, the actual shot from uh, outside the ring with the bar stool and the legs. I'm trying to remember everything that I saw. Um, it just had Raging Bull. Scorsese had to have seen this movie. To, oh, I'm sure he had, but I'm saying he had to pick up what Kubrick, early, early Kubrick, was doing. I just to me, there's no other way. So then I went further. So then there was uh, Black Swan, Aronofsky, the ballet sequence. Some of the I actually screenshotted it last night, and sent it to you guys on the uh, Facebook Messenger. Um, the one where uh, if you look at Natalie Portman in with the spotlight on her 
and the dancer in the movie. It's the exact. It's literally the exact same shot. Even the sequence is similar when she's dancing alone, where Aronofsky places the camera in relation to where uh, Kubrick places the camera. Very similar. Now, of course, the spaces are different. The, the lenses might be different, but the shot, the idea, the communication of style is exactly the same. Um, then, but this was the one that struck to me, stuck out to me the most. And this was that, um, let me just see where I put it. Uh, okay. So towards the end now, you're getting towards the resolution in the third act when they're, uh, when they're running after each other and they, then the two, the protagonist and the antagonist, uh, wind up in the, um, what was it? The, with, with all the mannequins and they're fighting with the mannequins. Now the the idea is to to get them on this wild goose chase where they have to run on run into one another and battle it out. And I couldn't help but look at the character, the chief antagonist, and think of the chief antagonist and Enter the Dragon. Uh, but you know, Bruce Lee just decided to make karate and mirrors work. But the idea, structurally, the idea of bringing the two adversaries in the same room to battle it out is there. And so I don't want to go too far because I, I, I could be wrong. I don't want to stretch this out. But I think that this is more of an influential film for filmmakers in particular and writers and people that look to the past to try to reinvent what was done. Because what was done was ordinary in a sense, but yet it wasn't. There was a, he was ahead of his time in what he was trying to show visually and, and how he was working within the framework of, of the screenplay. And I think other directors made his work Blade Runner that much better. Yeah, so that's it, guys. That's what I took from it. Bl- Blade Runner. Uh, yeah. It's not. It's not my idea. Actually, it belonged to somebody called Stella uh, Louis, who I uh, met some time ago. S- sorry, Mark, you've got your hand up and everything. But um, when uh, Nick was just talking about the mannequin sequence, mm-hmm. the J.F. Sebastian sequence in Blade Runner, um, when uh, is. That's straight out of Killer's Kiss. Mm, yep. Right. And that's and just to, to recap too, Day of the Fight, which is yeah. Cooper's so obviously. I mean, you, you see a lot of a lot of that, and then you look at Raging Bull. I mean, the decision to shoot in black and white, a lot of things. I mean, I really I really think people learned a lot from this film that were filmmakers that be that turned out to be very quite famous. Yeah, I, I would agree. Mark, do you have a quick comment? Yeah, to to that point, I I uh, kept thinking that at least somewhere along the way, a certain filmmaker named Quentin Tarantino had a specific idea for at least part of Pulp Fiction from this movie. Which one? Bruce Willis' character. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, right. And uh, I may be stating the obvious. Somebody may have mentioned it already, but who did the narration for this movie? Nick Kubrick himself. Kubrick himself. Yes. Holy. I'm not so sure it about it. Sa- it didn't sound like that's it. His, that's yeah. his voice. Can, okay. nobody, nobody I don't think that's correct. Okay. Uh, yeah, that voice. really didn't sound like him. But no. That's his voice. No, I'm sorry. You know, we did see. No, no, no. It's his voice. That's his voice. Have you started? Listen. You hear Kubrick's voice. Kubrick's voice is on the soundtrack, but not that. 100%. The narration, huh? What do you mean on the soundtrack? 
He's on the soundtrack. Kubrick's voice is on the soundtrack. His voice is on when he's calling in the uh, police uh, radio. I don't see anything to you, Joe. Well, let's go up to the roof and take a look anyway. He's no, on the police radio. I think that's him that's narrating the opening and the closing. Yeah. Yes. I will respectively disagree. <laughs> respectfully disagree. Let's what James P. has to say about this. Yeah, James, please. No, uh, I, I just said uh, uh, I recognize his voice right from the first time I've seen the movie. And I don't understand why nobody noticed it before. It's the voice in the head. In, in the head of uh, David, uh, David Gordon. It's crazy how you can get yourself in a mess sometimes and not even be able to think about it with any sense and yet not be able to think about anything else. You get so you're no good for anything or anybody. Maybe it begins by taking life too serious. Anyway, I think that's the way it began for me. Just before my fight with Rodriguez, Three days ago. I'm going to watch it again tonight. Yeah, we might have. I, I've never spotted that. I, 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 you've got me really intrigued by that. I'm going to watch it again. James, why don't you take the rest of your turn now uh, and give us your overall thoughts about the film, James P. Philip? Uh, it's uh, for me. Uh, Stanley, uh, like I said last week, uh, Stanley used a very particular language uh, who can be understand with um, not uh, by being intellectual, but uh, being um, uh, by, you, you learn with your uh, you understand with your instinct, with your intuition. You have to understand uh, suggestions and abstractions with your intuition. This is how the things work. And uh, some suggestions in the killer case are very disturbing for me. Since uh, the beginning, the opening credits, with the, the apparition of uh, a Minotaur production. Mm. Minotaur, when you understand who is the Minotaur, and I mean, uh, it's a beast, half animal, half human. but born because a god uh, take the, the form of uh, a beast. Uh, and there's a, a question of infidelity in it. And you all know, guys, that it's a real subject for Stanley, the question of fidelity. And um, so uh, they need to sacrifice children for the Minotaur. And uh, you can see... Uh, Puppets, babies, uh, images uh, of uh, of children. So, okay, that's all. <laughs> I don't want to say more. Yeah, but right. uh, it's like a double feature. You you see the, the film. The film told you a tell you a story. But there's another story to reconstruct with uh, your intuition, and uh, you can uh, you can have a disturbing uh, sensation sometimes. Oh, excellent observations, James. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay. No, those are those are really good. Uh, Brian, it's your turn. 
you know, the story didn't overly engage me. Um, but as um, as I think uh, Robert and others have said, this is a quantum leap. Um, I really saw the influence of his still photography in this film. Um, there are many still photo essays that echo sequences that he then obviously then was able to do visually in this. Um, and I think you begin to see, to me, what's always been his strength, which is a visual storyteller, not, not the script storyteller. Um, there's also his obsession with narrative structure. This is a circular timeline. He will go on to kind of perfect this better in Lolita um, with the constant flashbacks. And, and then in The Killing, even, it gets more complex. So, again, that to me is a quantum leap from something like Fear and Desire. This truly is, to me, a first film. Um, you know, scenes go on too long, the editing can be tighter, all of that. But the fact that he really experimented different angles, he made the grittiness of New York look incredibly dark. And if you look at somebody touched upon Blade Runner or Seven, those films obviously much more contemporary depict urban life being very gritty, very dark. Um, and he did it on a shoestring budget with a camera and and playing with lenses and time of day. Um, the, the underbelly and the class of the city, the people trying to get out of the underbelly of the city, if you will, you, you know, even the gangster against, you know, against all odds and trying to triumph. Um, I think it would have been a much more powerful film if the girl didn't show up. Somebody mentioned about a feminist statement that really would have been an interesting take because it really would have inspired almost like a Chinatown that the, the woman kind of was really behind, you know, saw this as a way and her key to get out. Um, I understood the pressures and why and why you put a happy ending on it and all that kind of stuff. But I think it would have been a more powerful film had she not shown up, um, you know, at the train station. Um, the mannequin sequence is, again, long, but the idea of doing something like that, again, showing the shadows of light, dark and personalities against that kind of a backdrop to me was very advanced for its time. Um, there's even a little thing, and I don't know the timeline of production to rear window, the whole thing of him looking out at her across the apartment. Now, rear window is made in 1954. As Robert said, this is made in 55. I don't know that he saw that, but I do think that's an interesting aspect, um, that he kind of observes her, you know, across a, across a courtyard. Um, there's a lot of things in this that are very advanced for someone who is probably in his mid to late twenties. Um, and I can definitely see the quantum leap and then it will go on more in the, in, in the, you know, in the killing. So if you look at this, the killing, and then ultimately paths of glory as these three step progressions, they're just quantum leaps each time in a relatively short period of time in terms of someone's development. You could see what he learned from one film to the next and how he, you know, progressed quantitatively, um, and just especially as a as a as a visual storyteller, and I could not let it go without without the most unusual Kubrick stare through a fishbowl um, that will exist, <laughs> <laughs> but it's there. <laughs> um, so it did it did exist, um, um, but you know the story didn't overly engage me, and it could have been a lot tighter. And um, you know, but but as an experimental film and and something to 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 try things, you know, it really epitomizes a lot of what he said later on in life, which is you know, for, for a young filmer, go out, shoot, edit, <clears throat> make your story, which obviously people can now do with their, with their phones for crying out loud. But, um, 
but as for filmmakers, because this really is what it was um, him doing as well as it was obviously a business, a business, you know, endeavor. That's it. Thank you, Brian. Great observations. Uh, David, it's your turn. And Mark, you can come on at the end. Okay. David. Yeah. Um, this film was something that I saw in film class when I was a senior. So it's, um, one that I'm kind of familiar with. Uh, I enjoyed it. I like this film. Um, the there are some sequences that are stretched out a little long. The um, uh, twins that are doing um, "Oh Susanna," <laughs> it's a little aggravating for me uh, sometimes. I, I like the the way that the city's photographed. Um, the little intimate things um, in the windows. Um, I thought that the acting um, from the villain was quite a step up from the um, uh, fear and desire role that he had. And, um, you know, the um, uh, boxing sequences, I, I paid attention to that and think about um, the day of the fight. Um, I did see an interview with uh, uh, Martin Scorsese where he said that his fight sequences in the Raging Bull were from more from Psycho than anything else, the way it was cut. <clears throat> um, I was noticing the um, locations and during the chase, and I'm thinking that those all had to be scouted out. Um, those locations actually look dangerous to me and um as well as the fight sequence at the end with the axe and the mannequins um there's uh, some of that goes on a little bit long i think but then there's some other times where it seems to be right on the mark and the swinging of the accents and some of the uh, confrontations also look dangerous to me um i um really was impressed though and nobody's really mentioned this the uh the way the sound was dubbed in and, and looped um you know you can look at it critically but um from every footstep and everything that was laid in uh, i really think that stanley did an incredible job with what he had to work with so I like the ending. For me, it worked. It was open-ended. Um, and um, really, uh, I would like to see it again. There, there's uh, several things that are going on in it that makes it worthwhile watching. So I'll just stop there. Excellent, David. So let's see, James Robert. Okay, a lot of the things I was going to bring up have already been brought up, of course, when you're when you're when you're farther down the list. Uh, one of the couple of things I, I, I did want to touch upon, and uh, Nick had mentioned them, and I think a couple of other folks had mentioned it, about uh, the influence that this film apparently has had right, on other filmmakers has already been brought out. Um, uh, Blade Runner, for sure. The mannequin sequence is absolutely, yeah, it's like, right. but, but uh, Ridley Scott is a friend of Stanley Kubrick, so it doesn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things that I found rather interesting, just a little tidbit, was um, the Latin music, okay? 
and the use of Latin jazz, the Latin jazz, and in an almost menacing fashion that it's presented at a time in periods of the film where it's it it, it adds to kind of a general menace, okay, or at least a feeling of that, right? You know, a feeling of dis, dis, dis uh, disconcerted, okay. And what I found interesting was was that it predates. Um, Orson Welles' use of Latin jazz in a very similar fashion in Touch of Evil, which was made three years, which was released three years after this film. Okay, now I know that Orson Welles is is was was a big fan of Stanley Kubrick. He spoke about him often. Okay, so I mean he had seen his films and he was a, a great admirer. In fact, I think in 1964 he'd said after he'd seen Doctor Strangelove that Stanley Kubrick maybe was the best filmmaker working at that time. Right. So, um, so it, it, it even the great Orson Welles, okay, you know, was taking from this this kind of upstart kid from New York, right? You know, and I, I thought that that was an actual, you know, I thought that was interesting. I'd never seen this. I'd seen both of these films, you know, several times, uh, 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 Touch of Evil and uh, um, uh, uh, this film, uh, The Killer's Kiss. And I had never made that connection until I saw it again yesterday. I finished it up yesterday. And I said, wow, I, I think there's too much correlation. I think I think Orson Welles really did borrow from Stanley on that one, or at least the, you know you use that motif, use that motif in, in his own film, right? And um, the the last thing I wanted to mention was uh, one of the things I found fascinating was yeah the happy ending as we've all you know discussed the forced happy ending, and I thought it was quite fascinating that in his next film, okay, he makes one of the most desolate endings in cinema. <laughs> okay, yeah. the killing you know the end of the killing which is one of my father's favorite endings of all movies right uh he just, you know the, the ending of the killing is just like the literal you know uh, uh negative version okay of the what he was forced to have to do okay yeah, on, on, on a killer's kiss right and so the thing is and it was just like you know because when i saw that ending i had forgotten that it had the happy end i really had forgotten because i hadn't seen this film in several years maybe about 10 years and I forgot about the happy ending. And so I saw that and go, oh, yeah, he decided if he ever had any power to make a film again, he was never going to do that. And I think he just, you know, I thought that was kind of funny. You know, Stanley Kubrick loves to screw with his audiences. He really does love to have fun with us. And the thing is, I'm very sure that that he did that um, again, just to to, to 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 finish off. Yeah, it's a, it's I wouldn't say it's a quantum leap, but it's a huge leap between fear and desire and killer's kiss it's huge now we can equivocate about about how big of that was but then when you realize okay that he made a full-blown masterpiece in his next film okay i think that the the the, the killing is is his is his first truly great work of art okay and so but what he learns when you go from fear and desire to Killer's Kiss and then to The Killing, okay? He really, and that's not that many years, right? It's about five years, six years, maybe five years, okay? That's a huge, huge difference. He was an established master of art, okay, when he made The Killing. And he did this all in his film school period of The Killer's Kiss and and uh, and Fear and Desire. So gr I love the film. I thought it was really great. Cinematography was fantastic. Uh, when he finally was able to work inside sets where he had control, he, I think that his, you know, somebody mentioned the details of the sets of the rooms that, these, that the two main characters lived in and stuff like that. I think that's where he really started to developed sort of that you see that that attention to detail that would continue to his last film right so um it's 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 an amazing film it is not a great film but it is it is an, again like fear and desire an important 
um, 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 artifact in the history of, of, of cinema art. So that's my, that's all I got right for now. Very good, James, Robert. And go ahead, Kathy. Okay. Um, I had a much higher opinion of the woman character than I've heard so far. Um, at one point, I was thinking, oh, my God, an actual woman character in a Kubrick movie. It's uh, just in terms, first of all, of screen time. Um, it's impressive. And she's a woman with a background, with reasons for what she's doing. Uh, and actually... It's a little questionable, but possibly some agency in this. When she uh, is talking on and on and flirting, um, you know, when the two of them are being held, and she keeps the guy talking and attention on her until he can escape. Now, based on the ending, you know, based on the ending, it, it would appear that she's trying to save him too, although that's questionable. But I I had a higher opinion of her. You know, I think she may have, well, there's Lolita, of course, but after that, she may have more screen time than any uh, woman character until Eyes Wide Shut. Um, also, I felt that we were invited to emotionally interact with these characters more than we are again. There's not the kind of emotional distance you get with, well, Barry Lyndon being the extreme, but it's less distant and more involving than I think later work. And uh, also I agree with, it's very interesting to see New York. And I was thinking at one point, um, if you now say she's in a loft on 24th Street, you get a really, really different mental picture now than you would. A loft on 24th Street now is a very, uh, very expensive, you get the image of very sophisticated place, definitely residential. Um, the last thing is I would love to take a closer look at the art that's in the um uh blocking out on his name but uh hello the dance manager yes the dance manager the art in his office is fascinating i wish they could just stop and look at it for a minute but yeah i thought i was really impressed like i think everybody else with what a huge leap it is from fear and desire i think that's it Great perspective, Kathy. Thank you. Wow. Uh, Ian. Um, yeah, well, like the last, uh, both Kathy and James have said, I've, I've been ticking, looking at all my notes and ticking them off as they've been mentioned by everybody else. But yeah, I, I, seeing it again, I haven't watched it for a few years. I was impressed by a lot of the photography that is, I mean, there is some very memorable uh there are some very memorable scenes in that if, photographically but i think as uh, robert pointed out to begin with some of the the scripting is a bit clumsy uh, you know whereby his editing is is good and he's still learning his trade obviously there are still some clumsy bits on the uh on the on the script side of things um i was really pleased that mark picked up on 
the locations as well. I was hoping that you New Yorkers in in, in the group would be able to sort of, um, you know, sort of go into that a little bit more. My geography of New York isn't uh, uh, at all uh, at all good. Um, I you know just looking through the rest of my notes here. Um, I, I did feel there were there were a couple of clumsy things. It's already been mentioned about overlong. The men in the fezes really irritated me. Actually, uh, they, they didn't strike me as I, I don't know. W- would that be typical of nineteen fifties New York? I, I'd have preferred a couple of bit more thugs. I mean, you you, you have to wonder whether James's comment about uh, some sort of symbolism in them wearing fezes and what have, what have you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think he. I think he had a limited budget for people that could harass. Yeah, you may be. You may be right there. I mean, but but they were on screen way too long and not engaging enough. They were, to my mind, they were an irritant. But you know, one of those things. Um, on the detail side, um, yeah, having having sort of done what I did with The Shining, you know, it's the opening scene of Minotaur. Uh, you know, seeing Minotaur there just makes you wonder how long Kubrick had some of these ideas in his head and, you know, how they sort of uh, made their way through, uh, um, uh, you know, his oeuvre to, to appear sort of, uh, well, not not explicitly, but uh, uh, to be in a, in a, a subtext in, uh, throughout many of his films and the sort of labyrinth in nature as, as indeed one of uh, the writers of a book on Kubrick, uh, his name escapes me just at the moment, uh, uh, actually spoke of. I was also intrigued as a, at a detail level about the the sort of the Germanic influence. Obviously, you got Ruth Sobotka there, his wife, doing doing her uh, slightly overlong, I agree, um, ballet sequence. But when we come to the guns at the end, it's, there's a Luger. You know, why why yeah, a German yeah. gun in yeah. a, uh, a you know in a shoot up in? I, I don't know how commonplace Lugers were in, uh, in in New York at the time or whatever. I mean, I suppose. Brought back as souvenirs from the war and what have you. They, 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 you know, I'm not trying to read too much into it, but you know, the choice choice of a Luger rather than a, a Colt or whatever. Uh, and yeah, uh, the you know, you know, sort of come back uh, again. The uh, the scene in the mannequin uh, with, with the mannequins, not just the 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 the, the links to Blade Runner, which uh, uh, this person Stella Louis mentioned, but uh, so you know, the the, the fact that it's. It, they're broken mannequins. There are torsos. It's like a slaughterhouse in its own right, you know. So he's really able to not just get a, you know, a fight sequence going between the uh, the, the, the protagonist and antagonist, but uh, to actually set it in effectively what looks like a, uh, a pseudo uh, slaughterhouse. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a, it's still a really good film to sit and watch. And you know, as uh, as Nick was talking about, it's. Uh, uh, you know, seems to have been quite influential on a lot of other directors, and deservedly so. So, uh, um, yeah, I'll, I will be watching it again in the not too distant future. I think. Well, thank you, Ian. And the book you're referring to, I think, is Kubrick Inside a Film Artist's Maze by Thomas Allen Nelson. That's the one. That's precisely the one. We should give that a look sometime. Great points. I will read from my notes. I remember Nathan Abrams asking us if anyone had kept, if anyone made a record of what Stanley did every day of his life, like Stanley did for Napoleon, it certainly would be good if we knew what books and movies he saw between making this film and Fear and Desire uh, and what 
you know, what was his state of mind when he got to making this film? Uh, I noticed that Fear and Desire begins and ends with the same shot, which is a Kubrick characteristic. Fear and Desire and this film, this film begins and ends in Grand Central Station. So he's learning to how to use repetition. He does repetition in this film, and it feels more effective than it did in Fear and Desire, where I felt like he was just reusing the footage. There's, always, there's more of a forward momentum throughout this film. A uh, big theme, as Filippo has pointed out, is jealousy and uh, instability of human emotions versus and decision-making. This is a, definitely a, a bad decision-making seminar. Uh, there is doubling, a lot of doubling in this film, like they, the two main, main characters live in twin apartments across from each other, and there's a point in the middle where uh uh danny or david the the boxer he is now in in uh chris chase's apartment so interesting shifting a perspective like going through the mirror and of course there's there's mirror shots uh i feel like he's going back to what his roots as a photographer and what worked as a photographer the the composition is much more effective uh, the, I noticed this. There was more food shots, a little grotesque. Uh, the swimmer in the tub, that little novelty toy, echoes to me. The fishbowl scene. I think he's realizing that a movie is a period of time, and anything you repeat during that period can be effective. Like musical notes and themes can be effective if you repeat them. Uh, both protagonists are kind of ha hangers on a taxi dancer and a fighter. Those are two rough ways to make a living, I think. Uh, but what, what other ways are there at that time? Uh, every new shot, I think more he got into whenever there's a new shot, it's has a double purpose of being interesting and communicating new information. I also wonder if anyone's compared the two fight scenes in this film and in Day of the Fight, where this film, you would think he had more control over the individual shots. Uh, but I'm not sure this is really an advance over Day of the Fight. Uh, I did find that Frank Silvera really stood out as a pro actor versus the others. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think there's just much more subtlety and range of expressions and details on his face and in his, his moments and his movements. Whereas with the other actors, they don't have as much things. They haven't learned how to do as much things in a short amount of time and be under control. Uh, he does give us some stuff to figure out, like uh, when they abduct uh, Chris Chase from her apartment and uh, Danny sees them and he runs to get to the apartment, but he runs over the roof and then down the stairs. And we see uh, the Frank Silvera character pausing as he runs down the stairs and he figures out, oh, that's how he got into the apartment. So I'm safe. Uh, but we need to figure that out from the sounds that we're hearing. 
I do wonder if the Subotka dance sequence would have been better with appropriate music versus the whole chunk of exposition. They have uh, Chris Chase tell her all, whole story while that is going on. And I think it detracts from how well that scene is shot. Uh, really good use of the handheld camera. It was very effective when he did bring it in. I did the, I do agree the dancers are irritating, but when the first moment they appear using the uh, handheld camera with them, you know they're going to cause problems. And to me, that was a very effective uh, shot in that you knew it unconsciously. And so there's a lot of suspense. What are they going to do? How are they going to mess things up? Uh, and then only the last, so the whole last sequence, which is just a chase scene and a fight, and just the uh, Gerald Fried score, to me, was the most effective and most Kubrickian. Kind of a wow. This is edited great. This is shot great. Like when he's in the street and he's just a very small figure with these very, very tall buildings, how that was composed. And then the whole thing where he runs around the top of the building and takes them forever and the camera pans in the middle of it. That was just interesting to watch. Uh, but the ending, I did think it felt really false. It made me uneasy and that Kubrick had a very, it seemed like well, Kubrick has a very dark worldview. If this is how, this is how the movie feels at the end, this is something very wrong with human nature. So those are my notes. And now we have a few minutes for general discussion. An hour and a half is not very long to talk about. But don't you think a human nature point would have been far more hammered if she doesn't show up at the train station at the end? I mean, that just, it just, it it, it opens it up, especially at that time that she was a much more manip manipulative uh, and desperate character. And I just think it would have, it, it changes the entire tone of the movie to to put that shot on and put essentially a happy ending. Yeah. Mm. Mark, your thoughts? To uh, Brian's point just now, so many film noir movies at that time exactly had that kind of cynical, downbeat, unfulfilled ending. And I think someone encouraged Stanley to maybe go a little bit against the grain, even though he may not have wanted to. So many movies of the period uh, wound up with the hero not being being left alone like he was at the beginning of the movie. So I think in this particular instance, he, someone may have encouraged him to. Uh, she also shows up with no luggage at the train station, so I guess we're supposed no to think they're going to they're going to stay in New York. <laughs> <laughs> but I, who who made the point? Kathleen made the point that she engaged Frank Silvera. Uh, with her bogus seduction to give him time to recover. That's a, exactly what occurred to me while I'm watching the movie. Because even though the acting did not necessarily bring it out or the script, the inference was that that was what she was doing because she already had expressed a distaste for the man and she's not certainly not going to turn around and at that particular moment become seductress so yes that's uh, that's reading between the lines one thing i'd like to point out is the irony of 
of uh, the boxing coach or the boxing manager being beaten up and assaulted in the alley and not <laughs> not having one iota of self-defense. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was like, yeah. He, he tries to run away, tries to climb up the wall, talk his way out of it. But some of the, some of the dialogue was uh, it was dubbed in later because you you can see the mouth moving ever so slightly out of sync. So I don't know if that means that uh, he didn't have enough time to sync it up in the editing process. But I think the, the sound take wasn't that good to begin with, so we had to bring the actors back to re-record and then dump it in later. One of those two or three, because the, the, at times it was just, just ever so distracting that particularly when they were talking, they were having breakfast, uh, it, it happened in a few other places, but I particularly picked up on it then when they were talking and uh, both of them, the dialogue coming out of their mouths was slightly out of sync with the movement. Uh, Ian? Yeah, just, just going back, uh, something you said, Mark, triggered a, a thought in my head. Of, I, I need to go back to just confirm it, but maybe maybe some of the more observant ones amongst you will, will be able to confirm it anyway. When uh, we we sort of see um, Davy looking across and seeing Frank Silvera uh, brutalizing. Um, uh, I forget a name. To, uh, uh, I forget a name now. Uh, well, see, and he starts going over. There, there's a he starts to engage with her, and she says it all started about an hour ago, and then it flashes back to Frank Silvera knocking on the door, going in, and then within about five minutes starting to beat her up and it was just i thought you know a bit of a clumsy bit of script writing uh because there's no way that that particular flashback would have lasted an hour and bearing in mind they don't they only have a mess over a couple of day period anyway uh I, you know so just a bit of clumsiness uh, you know nothing to be too ashamed of uh but uh, something that uh uh you, you know did, did, did sort of stand out to me I did also notice that Ian. Yes. Uh, Jonathan. Uh, yeah. Um, I noticed that on the IMDb trivia section, it said that Stanley Kubrick did not have filming permits required for many of these locations. And he had to conceal the camera uh, so that people would not catch that something was being filmed, which I found intriguing. Huh. Yeah. Which is why you might shoot it Sunday at 7 a.m. in the morning in downtown Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Well, I don't know at the time that you actually needed permits. Maybe, maybe, but 1954, they didn't establish a, an official permit process until the Lindsay administration in 70 or 71. So but using know. the buildings might have the individual buildings that he was going on and might have required something. I agree with you. I don't know about a permit to shoot a film in the city, and but also, maybe, the, maybe the buildings themselves to use. Also, all those people walking by in the frame, these days you have to control the sidewalk and clear every single one of those faces. He, he has one sequence in Times Square that I don't think was rear screen where I don't know what vehicle he's on, um, but he's elevated and he's, it yes. looks like he's driving. It did not look, at first I thought rear screen, but then I thought, no, this is not rear screen. Um, I, I and too. I thought that was interesting for that time 
period shooting yeah. like could have been on the back of the bus. I don't know. Yeah, it almost seems I, I, today we would have said a truck, um, but I don't know if that was it or not. I think they. Had- I I IMDb also says that Stanley Kubrick was collecting welfare during most of the shoot of this film. Unemployment, unemployment. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Another reason to shoot Sunday at seven a.m. because during the week you hustle your chess games. <laughs> I have a question. I have a question for Nicholas. Well, let's do David first and then Mark. All right. Okay. But I just wondered about the uh, actual ending. Is I mean, I'm okay with it, but um, yeah. does anybody have any idea of what the actual ending to this movie was? Uh, that would be beneficial to understand uh, what, what Kubrick's... Uh, motive was in part of this presentation and um i also kind of wondered why stanley uses the name dave so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think james P. <laughs> I, th- I think it ends with him at the train station getting on the train by himself and leaving the city <laughs> and the girl having gotten out and pulled one over <laughs> Yeah, but that's my uh, that's my theory. <laughs> there is one kiss in the movie too, and I was wondering if that had anything to do with the title. I'd have to look um, at that again closer. Can I, I say think she's kissed both by the gangster guy and by the boxer guy? But I think it's the gangster's kiss that the title refers to, "Killer's Kiss." Yes, I thought so. That's an excellent note to end on. Oh, Robert. We'll give you last word. Oh, I just, I wanted to mention that even though Killer's Killer's Kiss was properly, uh, Nicholas and others have mentioned how it influenced other films, uh, it's it's really important to recognize, uh, I think, some of the movies that Kubrick was influenced by uh, in making this. And I think we can clearly see Asphalt Jungle and the Naked City, especially having a huge uh, influence on Killer's Kiss uh, on almost every aspect of the film, Uh, from production design to cutting to uh, the way he choice of lenses. um, And also, I think some of the boxing movies uh, that the sort of noir slash boxing movies that were made in the early fifties, late forties, early fifties, the setup and other films like that had a huge, obvious, huge impact uh, influence on killer's kiss. So as much as he was passing on influence to younger filmmakers, he was absorbing and taking in, uh, major influences from uh, older filmmakers and movies that he was watching at that time. And, uh, and also in particular, I think Bergman's uh, Smiles of a Summer Night and Sawdust and Tinsel uh, had a big influence uh, on this film. Uh, many scenes reminded me of Ber- early Bergman. Uh, th- and I think what I think was prime Bergman, I think pr- I view Prime Bergman as the 50s, not the 60s, but the 50s. 
I think that's when he made his best films, and especially uh, Sawdust and Tinsel. Uh, and then the dance sequence, especially, that's very Bergman influenced. Uh, and it's also it's also the only uh, case I can think of where Kubrick filmed, actually filmed the performance, like recorded a performance. But, uh, you know, if we know how much he admired Bergman, uh, you know, mentioned him many, many times. I think this film really shows the Bergman influence. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see now Sawdust and Tinsel and Naked Jungle. I'm sorry, Naked City. Uh, I've not seen those two, but. Uh, yeah, Sawdust and Tinsel is 53, just before this one. Right. That'd be very much on his mind. Naked City was the first feature film ever shot entirely on location in New York. Wow. I'm sure that uh, maybe we discussed it sometime here, or I read it somewhere, but I think Stanley visited that set as a photographer right. early on, 18 or 19. So if he did and spent any time there, he was clearly very influenced. Yes. I can do this, he said to himself, almost certain. Right. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. This thank you, Mark. This Thanks, good. Mark. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you, Kathleen. David, everybody have a great weekend. Hey, everybody. And everybody. Thanks to Mark Lentz and James Robert Sherman and all at the SCAS Academy, Jonathan Harvey, Robert Kohler, Mark McKinnon, Nick LaMatina, James Phillip, Brian Kahn, David Sukavati, Kathy Metzger, and Ian Roscow. In the next installment, we will be exploring Kubrick's third feature film, The Killing, from 1956, in an upcoming episode of Kubrick's Universe as part of our Thicatria Kubrick season conducted by Mark Lentz and the SCAS Academy. Hey, and don't forget to check out our two Facebook groups, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, which is the world's largest online forum for all things Stanley, and Kubrick's Universe. We also have two great YouTube channels, again, for the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and... Drum roll, please. Kubrick's Universe. And hey... While you're at it, please head over to Patreon.com, search Kubrick's Universe, and offer your support from as little as one English pound or one U.S. doll hair per month. So, on behalf of our producer extraordinaire, editor, and all-around bon vivant, I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, thanking you for joining us ringside once again in Kubrick's Universe. We'll see you next time. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.